The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the normalisation of plastic surgery, discussing the changing face of the BBC proms, and asking if the Vatican has given up on beauty. First up, in her cover piece for the magazine this week, Louise Perry writes about how social media is fueling the cosmetic surgery industry. She joins me now, along with The Times's Sarah Ditton, author of the upcoming book, Toxic, Women, Fame and the Noughties. Louise, is plastic surgery problematic? And if so, why? Uh, is it problematic? I mean, yes. I also think it's probably completely inevitable because I think that as more and more ways of prettifying ourselves have become available, they have been welcomed with open arms by consumers. And I think the really striking thing about beauty trends now compared to in the past is that now the the cost, the sort of annual cost of looking normal, right, at least looking well-groomed, is much higher than it used to be. You know, it's not just getting a mani-pedi and getting your hair dyed or, you know, whatever, already quite expensive, right? It's now fillers, Botox, facelifts, all of these things. It really, really adds up. And I think what's going on there is just that the sort of desire for beautification is pretty much bottomless, particularly among young women. And they're not wrong to recognise that actually being beautiful advances your interests in all sorts of ways. There's so much data that I cite in the piece showing that people, you know, they do better professionally when they're better looking. It's not just in the sexual market. People like them more. Like, there's so much inequality actually based on beauty. So I sort of think, well, if the technology exists to make oneself more beautiful, people are being completely rational in choosing to spend their money on it. So why might there be a problem with that? Well, I mean, at the extreme end of it, it can be quite dangerous. So, like, one of the procedures I write about is um, the Brazilian butt lift, which I think has a death rate of one in 3,000, which is really very high, particularly because you've often got women flying out to parts of the world where they can get it more cheaply and where it's not very well regulated. So that's clearly not, that's not a good thing. You know, ditto, all of these things have side effects, so there are obviously some physical consequences that we wouldn't necessarily welcome. I think also just, you know, on a feminist level, I don't think we should be applauding women spending thousands, even tens of thousands on their appearance when it's basically just an arms race. Now what's considered to be a normal forehead for a 35-year-old is completely different than it was a generation ago just because Botox has become so ubiquitous. Anyone who doesn't have lip fillers looks like they have thin lips. So you've ended up with this artificial hierarchy which women are constantly battling to get to the top of and made also worse by TikTok filters and the fact that you log onto Instagram and you're instantly confronted with photos of the most beautiful women in the world mm. all day, every, every day, beamed into your eyeballs. I think women are wasting a lot of time and money on this and it's absolutely not clear that it's making them happier. 
Sarah, I would like to get your thoughts on Louise's argument. Do you think that women are in this beauty arms race or hierarchy? And is that because of plastic surgery or at least worsened by the presence Mm. of plastic surgery? Yeah, I think plastic surgery is a large part of it, although it is worth remembering that even though the demand for plastic surgery does go up year on year and it is increasingly common and it is obviously more common among people who are more likely to see. So faces that you see on screen are more likely to be faces that have had some form of surgery or injectables. So it is growing, but at the same time, it's still a very niche pursuit it's still by no means universal. Most of the people who you meet are never going to have any kind of procedure whatsoever. So we can kind of overstate this thing, but it does have a collective influence. And I think even more than surgery and injectables themselves having an influence, the presence of filters makes a huge difference to what we think a normal face looks like and what we think our normal face looks like. A huge amount of kind of socially induced dysmorphia, I think, comes back to filters and to the fact that filters are kind of unavoidable. So a lot of phones just have an array of presets that will adapt your appearance a bit and kind of soften you a bit here, sharpen you a bit there, make you look just, you know, edgy just a little bit closer to the ideal without you consciously needing to engage with that at all. And it does contribute to this sort of incremental rise in people's unhappiness with how they feel about themselves, especially among women. Hmm. Well, we actually on the point Sarah just said there, especially among women, and you say in your piece that 93% of all cosmetic surgery procedures in 2022 were undergone by women. But are there, are we seeing more men having plastic surgery as well? Is that on the rise? So men are getting in on the action a bit, and there are some procedures, I believe, which are like male-specific. You can get, for instance, fillers in your jawline to make you look like you've got a squarer jaw, plus Botox, you know, all of these things, facelifts. I believe that an awful lot of men in the public eye are getting work done now. And again, you know, who can blame them if it's available and it extends your career and so on. I think, though, that the pressure is always going to be more on women and we're always going to expect most of the customers in the aesthetics business to be women for the simple reason that youthful beauty is incredibly prized. Youthful female beauty is incredibly prized. And, you know, I'm thinking particularly of celebrities actresses, whoever, who want to be able to extend their careers and may be able to do so by keeping up with the Joneses and having the procedures that everyone else is having. You can't really blame them. Well, yes. I mean, you said earlier, it's actually in many ways a very rational, yeah, rational thing so. to do. But in, then can't the argument be made that if people are just acting upon their own reason and their own self-interest, but particularly when it comes to careers, that plastic surgery is actually more of a help than it is something which is problematic? Well, I think the challenge is that it's a positional good beauty, right? In that it is valuable in the sense that if you are more beautiful than other people, you have an advantage over those other people. If everyone, though, is spending vast sums, I do completely take Sarah's point that this isn't actually everyone, you know, like we're largely, Mm. what we're talking about at the moment is basically people in the public eye and people who are relatively well off. Although, you know, the market that this is moving into is the middle classes, basically, is younger women who are earning kind of goodish professional salaries but are not rich. You know, that's actually the key demographic who are now starting to... I'm sure many spectator listeners are in this demographic, right, who are starting to move into this market, having not done so before. And yes, I mean, the issue is that you end up 
running to keep still because it just changes what we think particularly when it comes to aging it changes what we think looks normal at a certain age and so you start if you just look natural you start actually looking unusually old in other people's eyes yeah. you know much of this is the injectables and so on but it's also just things like using retinols or whatever like every 30 year old i know is using retinols overnight which doesn't mean necessarily spending a lot of money but it's all just pushing in that direction towards us being ever more ever more interventions mm. Well, of various kinds. Sarah, on Louise's point there about how the market is moving into the middle classes, mm. are we just seeing much more of a normalisation of all this now? I mean, you see it even in some of the language. There's, I mean, it's a ghastly word, but tweakments, for example. Mm. You know, sort of small little changes here and there. We're not talking massive, you know, slicing away. <laughs> but yeah. are we just getting a further normalisation, not just in terms of the classes it's moving into, but the small little specific things that can be done very easily and relatively cheaply yeah i think things like botox and fillers are obviously much more accessible than having a facelift which was prior to the noughties your only option if you wanted to reduce your wrinkles the only way to go would be to have really quite drastic and unpleasant surgery you know botox takes 10-15 minutes it is extremely unobtrusive And I think, honestly, like, I do think it's kind of important to draw a line and to recognise that different procedures come with different risks. So obviously, Louise mentioned the Brazilian butt lift, which is absolutely horrific, like, in my opinion, is a completely indefensible procedure that no surgeon should be performing. And it's very, very bad. And the cheaper you go, because you aspire to that kind of look, the more dangerous and the more unpleasant your experience of having it is likely to be. But on the other hand, if you get Botox from, you know, a trained, skilled professional, then it's kind of like the gold standard of what you want a beauty procedure to be like. It works, which, you know, barely anything in beauty works. (laughs) So like, this is amazing. It's reversible. So you have it. And if you don't like the results, six months later, it will just go and it'll be as if you never had it. And assuming that you have it done appropriately, then it's safe. It is, you know, medically tested, medically proven and it is a safe thing to do if you have it done in the appropriate circumstances. Problem comes when you kind of go down the market, you go cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and you end up in situations where people are having it done out of, I mean, I heard stories when I was writing about it of people having Botox done out of the back of an estate car in a car park or around a kitchen table. These are not, you know, safe surgical environments. These are not places where you're going to find a skilled maxillofacial surgeon who's doing this work for you. And that's the kind of unfairness, really, inherent, not just in injectables, but in all plastic surgery, that the pressure on women is universal. And in some ways, the less money you have, the more pressure there is to kind of turn your body into an asset, because sometimes that's going to be your primary resource. So the less money you have, the more incentive there is for you to go to somewhere that is, you know, not a safe, not an effective practitioner. And in the case of Botox and injectables, there should be. I don't know if this is going to be one of those things that's stalled by the fact that Westminster is currently just a kind of a bag of cats and isn't going to get anything done this year. But there should be legislation going through that 
produces a regulatory framework for the injectables market. And it's so overdue. It should have been done 20 years ago. It's ridiculous that it's taken this long. And one of the reasons it's taken so long is that there is a patronising, dismissive attitude to it. It's like fluffy stuff that only affects women. So it was never taken seriously. But once it goes through, it is going to mean the end of cheap Botox. And that is kind of unfair. It means that people who have less money are going to look older and you are going to be able to really, really see class difference in terms of how people are aging. And Louise, I'd like to get back, if I may, to the role of social media in a lot of this. And this almost kind of feedback loop by which people see versions of themselves perhaps through a filter and then therefore try to make themselves look like that filter. Is there any evidence, do you think, that people are starting to realise that this is somewhat artifice and realise that they should move away from perhaps this digital existence. Is the tide turning against these ideas of beauty or is it only getting worse and worse? Mm, I think it's getting worse. (laughs) (laughs) The the TikTok filter is incredible. I don't normally use TikTok because I'm a little bit too old, but I made a foray into the world of TikTok for the purposes of this piece and looked at lots of hashtag Barbie nose job content and so on. And yeah, the filters are amazing, actually. They're incredibly natural incredibly you can do filters you know it's not just the extreme stuff you can do filters that make it look as though you've had lip fillers for instance just a very very slight tweak to your appearance and then of course you look at yourself in the phone screen and you say oh yeah you know for 200 pounds or whatever this look could be mine and I think I mean one of the reasons I think that this isn't likely to go away is that unfortunately young people are just spending more and more time online and one of the really distinctive things about Instagram face, so-called, so that's the super smooth, super pouty kind of look achieved through aesthetic treatments, is that it actually looks better in 2D. And someone commented on the piece that actually I've had a few times of meeting famed internet beauties in real life and was really struck by how uncanny they look, actually, that what looks gorgeous on screen looks quite straight, you know, not bad, but quite strange in real life. But then you figure, well, you know what, these women are making their fortunes in 2D. They're making their fortunes on the internet. And being beautiful in that context is obviously very valuable, very important. I guess that just as we live ever more of our lives on the internet, we should expect people to start prioritising that. Uh, Sarah, just finally, do you think it's possible to argue that criticisms made on plastic surgery often come from the perspective of people who have youth on their side and actually perhaps once they start to get a bit older, might they might think mm, maybe there is an advantage after all to getting a little bit of work done. Well, there is definitely a tendency. I mean, I think the kind of the big example of this is when Catelyn Moran wrote How to Be a Woman, that came out in 2011, I think. She was very adamantly anti-Botox. And then I think 2020 was when More Than a Woman, her book about being middle-aged, came out. And that had a very kind of slightly sheepish chapter of like, actually, I'm into Botox now. <laughs> actually, I've come round on the Botox point. So yeah, I think there is a certain amount of truth to that and I think it's easy to overestimate as a younger person how kind of how psychologically well you're going to take getting older you know I'm 41 and there are certain aspects of my appearance that I can see have changed in not particularly drastic ways you know I have my cabella line which is very graven between my eyebrows and has been there you know it's been working its way in for a few years now and like genuinely I would quite like to fix it I would quite like to have that Botoxed out and it's purely a question of the money 
that I would be committing to doing that every year that is holding me back from doing it. So yeah, I think there's an aspect to it. And I think it's really important that when we criticise these things, we criticise them from the standpoint of what is their effect on mass rather than talking about sort of making individual judgments of women for their own decisions to do or not to do certain procedures. And above all, to be critical of an industry that really can be extremely exploitative, extremely rapacious and extremely irresponsible. Sarah and Louise, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Next, in anticipation of the BBC proms this week, Philip Henscher writes in the magazine that classical music has gone from being a supreme cultural statement to just another curious musical genre. He joins me now with Sir Nicholas Kenyon, former controller of BBC Radio 3 and director of the proms, and now the Telegraph's opera critic. Philip, in your piece, you write about the changing nature of the BBC proms, and you start with what you call the two faces of the proms. Could you start by explaining to our listeners what you mean? Well, I think that most people in the world who are not very attached to the proms, when they think of the proms, they think of the last night of the proms. But the last night is, you know, it's a it's a, a very old-fashioned sort of concert now. It's this kind of series of light pieces, miscellaneous things, culminating in... Um, a series of patriotic songs. Now, you know, that sort of thing is is perfectly perfectly all right, but it's nothing like the rest of the season. You know, the rest of the season is has become a quite a quite a serious and idealistic and forward-looking series of classical music concerts and some some other things. I think it's been a great mistake to be honest to hang on to the uh, uh, the format of the last night of the proms because it does give quite a false impression of what the rest of the proms is like. But uh, you know, I I understand that it's almost impossible to uh, to do to do it in practical terms to get rid of it. So Nicholas, what do you make of that assessment? Do you think Philip's being being uh, a little harsh on the last night? No, I think it's absolutely fair because one of the things one constantly had to encounter when running the rest of the season at the proms was uh, visitors from the Far East coming into the Albert Hall saying, where are the flags? (laughs) Uh, And being slightly disappointed by the seriousness of the occasion. Look, it's just something you have to take as part of the history of the proms and I think rather than Philip's idea that, that one should just junk the last night, what we tried to do in my time, which is a, you know, a fair while ago now, was expand it outwards. That was the beginning of proms in the park, in Hyde Park, and eventually around the four countries of the UK, just to show that this can be a completely different sort of musical celebration, but a very inclusive one. And Philip, the last the last night, and actually more generally the, the proms, they often come under uh, accusations of all sorts of things, you know, from, from people saying that it could be racist to saying it could be populist grandstanding, and then other people saying that the whole proms themselves are too elitist. I mean, what, what's, your, what's your response to this? Do you think the proms just can't win? <laughs> well, it's difficult to take it, take accusations of elitism 
very seriously when you can get into the proms even now you know the best proms for eight quid if you're prepared to stand up in a week when the tickets for taylor swift have been you know going for hundreds and hundreds and pounds probably thousands of pounds no one really calls those elitist and the proms give you a much better experience musically i would say so i think the question of elitism is is a duff one. What is really um, a problem, not just for the problems, but for classical music and for culture generally, are sort of perceived barriers which just aren't there. You know, I mean, how do you get rid of barriers that don't exist? I, I think that's, you know, something that nobody's been able to solve. I think Philip had a good point in his article about the changing status of classical music within the prom season. And I think that's really a reflection of how public taste is changing and uh, what Philip refers to as barriers that aren't there. I I would really agree with that in that the proms of the past, very much as the classical music audience, was absolutely firmly in a box. It was a specialist, if highly popular, approach to the central music of the repertory. Beethoven symphonies, Brahms symphonies, da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. And what happened during my time before and after was this huge, huge expansion of what people regarded as great music that was worth encountering in a prom season. And those were the judgments one always had to make, you know, whether we were talking about all-night Indian music, whether we were talking about new sorts of contemporary commissions, whether we were talking about folk music from around the world, and those sort of things balanced up against a commitment to an ever-widening range of music. I, I was ter- I was, can I just say I was terribly struck by Philip's memory of going to a whole week of the 1983 proms. So I got up my um, 1983 <laughs> proms guide, and as well as the things you mentioned, Philip, like the Tenstedt Marler 6, which I remember vividly and had a cassette of for years, the thing about 1983 was we are getting, for instance, a whole Rameau opera. Yes. We're getting a Bach passion conducted by Andrew Parrott on period instruments. We're getting a late-night concert by Julian Breen. So... There is that expansion towards early music, and there's also a huge raft of new commissions. So even then, the repertory was broadening in what I would say were very creative ways. I think the key point about um, about that period, it was uh, Robert, Robert Ponson's big, Ponson yes. big period, and also um, John Drummond's, and also, if I may say so, Nick's period running the, the proms, is that this expansion did take place without um, abandoning the commitment to excellence. And I do worry now that some of those, some of these expansions, they are being made by putting the notion of excellence on one side. Now, in my view, you know, those, uh, there are socially, the best socially conscious 
expansions of what classical music or art music means are things that really cling on to excellence and put excellence at the forefront, like Daniel Barenboim's West West East Divan Orchestra or Chinica, which I think is a fantastic Chichi Nwanaku's Chinica, which is a fantastic orchestra. But I have to say, in the last two or three years, I've sometimes gone to a concert at the proms and thought this person should not be on in this position. I mean, objectively, it's just not a good you, performance. You mean a performer? A, a, a conductor or mm-hmm. a composer. And it doesn't matter why they've been put up there, but they have been put up there before they're ready. You know, I don't think there's any doubt in that about that in some cases. And I don't think it does anybody any good to do that. I mean, you know, if there are... When you think of, you know, the really fantastic, you know, women conductors like Marion Allsop, you know, it does no good to say, well, we're going to put uh, a woman up there who basically is at the level of the Royal Academy first year conducting course, because she's a woman. It, it, makes it, it makes it seem as though, you know, the, it doesn't really matter whether uh, somebody like that is, is up to it. Or if you're going to say one of the great composers of the 19th century is Amy Beach, suddenly, I mean interesting mining composer, you know, not really in the same league as, as Bearvelt. You know, these things are being done almost by putting excellence to one side in a way that was never the case in the past, I think. And, and are you saying that that's for sort of slightly political reasons? Yes. Because we're talking, yep, because, because of the gender, gender balance concerns, that sort of thing? Yes, and other, yeah. and other concerns. I think it's fair that one all, always has to guard against that, but I must say in my more limited proms going recently, I haven't encountered that. I mean, I think Amy Beach is a very good example. Louis Saronk is another. Ethel Smythe is another of composers who were genuinely neglected in my time and before because there wasn't and there has now come forward an interest in those composers. And we judge for ourselves. The audience judges for itself, as it always has done, with the new work, uh, some of which, the new work that I presented in my time, was frankly a failure. Some of it was extremely successful and has gone on to be performed a lot of times. But I think the great thing about the proms, and that what disturbs me about what Philip says, is the commitment to quality has always been paramount. Because I think that's one of the underlying reasons for the success of proms with the audience. I mean, one of them is just the feeling that they're going to enjoy themselves, whatever they hear. That's a very important bit. But the other is a a degree of trust that anything that is put on by the proms is going to be worthy of maybe 15 or 20 minutes attention in your life. And you may like it or you may not. So I think it would be it would be really a pity if any other commitment other than quality or excellence took over, but I don't see that happening. Philip and Nicholas, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And finally, The Spectator's Damien Thompson writes about what he considers some of the misguided initiatives by both the Church of England and the Vatican to engage with popular culture, which prompts him to ask, has the Vatican abandoned beauty? He joins me now with Father Lawrence Liu, prior and parish priest at Our Lady of the Rosary and St. Dominic. Damien, to start with, 
could you tell our listeners about the audience with artists at the Sistine Chapel last month? What was striking about it? I think what shocked people most was that one of the artists involved, a Spanish photographer called uh, Serrano, who's a, a transgressive artist. And you're not kidding, because his most famous piece of work, excuse me, Father, but it's called Piss Christ. And it is indeed a crucifix submerged in the vat of the artist's own urine. And this has been, he did this in the 80s, I think, and it's been, it's been, it's been notorious for decades. And the Vatican had not only thinks that this guy should join a gathering of, what, 200 artists um, to discuss culture, but this wretched bureaucratic Irish bishop in the Vatican, who I've met, Bishop Ty, has actually come out and said, well, it's challenging us, piss Christ, to know the realities of it, or whatever, some bladder. <laughs> and um, they had old Ken Loach there, far left Ken Loach, kicked out of the Labour Party from Lloyd to an anti-Semitic organisation. I know that some very gifted Catholic artists were not on the guest list because of their doctrinal orthodoxy. It's just part of the unfolding catastrophe of this pontificate. As somebody in Rome explained to me, the dicastery for culture is inviting these crazy people because they think Pope now rules, Francis now rules all the dicastries in an almost totalitarian way. And they want to do whatever they think will please him. And whatever pleases Francis seems to be anything that will upset the Conservatives. That seems to be the only measure of his you know, getting his approval. Will it upset the Conservatives? His own views, his own tastes. He's got quite good taste in music, or very good taste in music, if, if, if it's believed. But it's just this endless process of rubbing people's nose in it. And two people, both a very well-known Catholic artist under um, and this distinguished priest scholar said to me, this is intimately connected with the assault of the Latin mass, the absolute wicked iconoclastic, you know, thuggish attempt led by the revolting Arthur Roach to stamp out the Latin mass that Benedict XVI so gloriously restored as an option for Catholics. So it's all bowed up in, in what I think is a you know, pontificate that's gone desperately off the rails. I can't wait for it to end because with every passing day the Catholic Church is weakened. F Father Lawrence, I wondered what your thoughts are on Damien's argument. Do you think that the Vatican has embraced transgressive art perhaps to uh, the detriment of more conservative art and ways of thinking? Huh. I, I have to say that it wasn't until I read this article that this was brought to my attention properly. I tried to uh, avoid reading too much about what's happening in the Vatican at the moment. And so this was uh, something that surprised me somewhat. It reminded me of a beautiful meeting for artists and musicians that Pope Benedict XVI had called, also in the Sistine Chapel. And this seemed to me to follow in that tradition, I guess. But it seems to have, as you said, Damien, sort of perhaps missed the mark or it's sort of achieved, trying to achieve the wrong things. I'm not exactly sure whether it's meant to be provocative about the Latin Mass and the beauty that that stands for, but it's certainly, there are many other things that uh, have been provocative, I suppose, in the last two weeks, and one could be distracted by the, all these other things. Maybe that's why I've not paid attention to this event at all. I wonder, what is the point of this 
It's some waffle about, oh, the reality of the crucifixion, the reality of the bodily fluids just bring home the agony of the crucifixion or, or whatever. It's blather from the artist. He's a distinguished photographer. Some of his work is very interesting. I'm not against modern art. I'm not against modern art in churches. I'm not against modern music. You know, I'm really open to modernism so long as it's good. Um, well, one of the things I mentioned in this article, and I think it's a really important point, is that the Vatican is promoting the art, so-called, of a priest called Marco Rupnik, who is accused of the most gross acts of so disgusting that I can't really describe them in a podcast. And his art is plastered everywhere, all over the Catholic Church, because he's got this sort of faintly modernist... I mean, somebody said it's a hallmark meets Roswell, because all his... The Holy Family and everything, they've got these always black, empty eyes. And this rootnik mosaics are everywhere. But now we know, not only is the guy a horrible abuser, but, you know, not... Not only do we know that he's an abuser, we know that some of his sick ideas about the Eucharist and sex are actually portrayed in his so-called art, which the Vatican, despite everything, continues to tweet out moronically. Well, I, I wonder, Damien, you, you mentioned earlier that you believe this is sort of connected, perhaps thematically or in, or in some other way, to the Pope Francis um, pontificate's uh, ideas about the Latin mass. I wonder if you could expand on, on that point of your argument a little bit. Yes. They are willing to embrace every conceivable aesthetic except the aesthetic of their own heritage. And so the beautiful Latin mass, which is beautiful in its construction, in its celebration, in, its, in the art it's inspired, this is being actively suppressed at a time when the photographer of Piss Christ is being invited into the Vatican. It's revolting, and it is particularly distressing. I was particularly irritated. Younger Catholics who are actually attracted to the Latin Mass and traditional ways of saying the Mass. There's, a, there's Father of the Dominican, there's a, there's a Dominican rite. And I know for a fact that some young Catholics are They've been kicked in basements to sell it. I mean, they're just being treated like, you know, like heretics or like, you know, like scum, basically. And they're actually embracing this because they know that when they see the mass of the ages, they won't be, you know, no, no, as I put it, no dad dancing bishop is going to tell them to contemplate a picture of their savior or a crucifix dangling in the artist's urine. And I think it's going to have, people say it's going to have the Streisand effect. You know what that is. Barbara Streisand makes it so much fuss about something that should make things worse. And I think the banning of the Latin mass. I know for a fact, has made one or two of my young Catholic friends curious enough to go to it for the first time. Fortunately, there's a generation of priests of whom Father Lawrence is a distinguished example who appreciate the liturgy, not just the, you know, the, the Tridentine Mass, but the traditional liturgy of the church, the traditional art of the church, the importance, the connection between beauty and holiness. And these are people like Father Lawrence or the sort of priests to whom younger Catholics are looking. And one day, the dad-dancing bishops who are my age are going to die off, and I think the Catholic Church will have no alternative, I hope. If it's still around, I mean, so much damage has been done, they will embrace the Church's unique heritage, because you can only find it in a Catholic Church. Mm. 
Well, uh, Father Lawrence, I wonder what you make of Damien's generational point there. Uh, are you finding that sort of younger Catholics, are you, are you finding uh, more of an attraction towards the Latin Mass and to traditional classical Catholic religious art from sort of younger members of congregations and so on? Uh, yes, I mean, quite, quite definitely. Although the generational divide is not always quite as pronounced, perhaps, I want to note that one of the oldest Dominicans in my province, when Traditionis came out, he actually asked for permission then to say the Dominican Rite Mass, not because he had any particular love for it before, but because he didn't like the kind of injustice of the situation. And so he became a most unlikely, but a stalwart, I think, defender of the Dominican Rite Mass that goes on I didn't uh, in our priories. Dominican Rite Mass is covered by Traditionis as well, is it? Um, not not uh, explicitly, but uh, the approach that we're taking is to be as cooperative as possible. Well, it's interesting that Cardinal Muller, who held the job that this wretched Fernandez guy now holds, Cardinal Muller, distinguished theologian, not, I mean, orthodox, but not particularly conservative, associated with, with, with uh, um, liberation theology in Latin America. But anyway, he was he was doctrinal chief until he was sacked by the Pope very brutally. I don't think he'd ever celebrated the Trinitarian Mass until recently. Yes, I, I think the Streisand effect, it's, as it, you put exactly. it. Exactly, and it's religious persecution. I sent a message to Lord Alton, Myra and all and say, I wish that among, you know, while he's campaigning for religious freedom, he would point out there's some actual religious persecution that you get. And it's horrible, it stinks, and the excuses are so... I mean, this man wrote... He should never have been ordained. The fact that he's ended up a cardinal makes me sick to my stomach. I've been watching it ever since he was an ambitious secretary of the Bishop's Conference. Ghastly, ghastly, ghastly man. Cruel and thuggish in his application of what was a, was already a very, very nasty piece of legislation. Well, when I like to look at all this, uh, you know, in a theological sort of perspective, and uh, is the church going to die as a result of all this? Obviously not. The church, after all, is the mystical body of Christ on earth. The Holy Spirit still animates the church and Christ is the head. And I think that these lines are being drawn so that we will be able to see more clearly who stands on the side of what is right, true, and good, and what is truly beautiful. That surely is a work of the Holy Spirit too, to reveal, after all, uh, whatever is uh, corrupt and terrible. You mentioned, for example, the, the disgusting situation with Marco Rupnik. I think that it is surely a mark of the Holy Spirit at work to reveal the corruption of the man behind these works of Mosaic. And I think it has rightly and fittingly brought the idea of art and the correlation of the art to the, the morality of the artist very much to the forefront. And certain organizations might think that the, the case is now closed because they pronounced that they're going to keep the art on the walls. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's actually opened the, the Pandora's box, if you like, for a good discussion of what art is for and the role of sacred art and artists and their moral lives. All this has to be brought up and talked about properly and discussed. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.